and welcome to another episode of The Full English with me, Pam McLaughlin. My guest today is Alex Quigley, and you're probably familiar with his work, but for those of you who aren't, Alex is a former teacher who now works at the national charity, the EEF, that's the Education Endowment Foundation. He's also a columnist for both TES and Teach Secondary, and he's a writer. He's written Closing the Vocabulary Gap and Closing the Reading Gap. Alex has a website, and that's called The Confident Teacher. And I would encourage you to have a look at that when you get a chance, as there's so many resources on there. And also Alex's blogs are there, and they're really interesting and thought-provoking. So have a look at The Confident Teacher when you get a chance. Now, in this episode, we're going to discuss Alex's new book, Closing the Writing Gap. You're going to hear about the science of writing and how to further develop your students' writing skills. You'll also hear some great ideas, which hopefully you can, you know, reflect on your own pedagogical teaching of writing. And as well as that, we're going to talk about the importance of whole school literacy. I'm sure you'll find it really useful. So let's go. Welcome to the Full English Podcast. It's great to have you join me for this episode as I'm really looking forward to hearing about your new book, Closing the Writing Gap. And as is usual with this podcast, first of all, can I ask you to share a memory from your own school days? And it can be anything you like because the listeners love hearing the memory at the start of each episode. So what would you like to share with us today? So I think my, my memories, it's influenced by uh, my own children, their current experiences. So my little boy Noah's just about to do his year six residential. Mm. Um, and just how excited he's been for a number of weeks has taken me back and it made me think of my school trips. Um, <laughs> and my school was uh, inner city Liverpool. And if you know the play Our Day Out, um, yes. <laughs> basically our school trips were a replica of Our Day Out. So, oh dear. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we got we got bussed to North Wales, uh, to Conway Castle, to oh, Colomendi. Yeah. Um, to be fair, I think my experience is much more um, lovingly memorable than than some of the sadness of our day out. It didn't quite have the tragedy, um, but it's yeah, it certainly had the kind of <laughs> um, city children experiencing the countryside and really fond memories of it. Um, more than one, actually, they all kind of blur into one, but. Since Noah's been so excited about going on his residential, it's it's flooded back memories that I thought were long since dormant um, of climbing mountains and, um, you know, going in canoes and kayaks. And yeah, it's uh, positive, positive memories. Oh, that's so nice, isn't it? That's the thing, isn't it? Those sort of memories that you have from school when you go on those trips and they are so educational as well, aren't they? And it's interesting that he's so excited about it as well. So that's yeah, really I good. Think- you kind of think, oh, I might share a memory about, you know, when I was um, reading Shakespeare and kind of, you know, <laughs> fell in love with English. But but actually, the things I can remember are the day my history teacher wore two wrong shoes and you know, <laughs> kind of school trips and, and the day yeah. my friend did X. And, and actually, you it really does take you back to thinking just how important friendships are at school, these the unique experiences and that's not to take away from the academic I, I love the academic aspect of school and you know enjoyed lots of it but it is some of the more experience kind of aspects mm. of school that stand out you know you're the, the, that one trip to the theatre in year 10 that kind of residential trip etc. Yeah no definitely well thanks for sharing that with us so uh, moving on then seamlessly Um, What I'm going to ask you to do, first of all, is to go back a bit and talk about your own teaching. And I think your blogs, by the way, I used to read your Hunting English blogs back in the day. I found them really useful. And now your website, The Confident Teacher, and you've written several books and you work for EEF, the Education Endowment Foundation. You write articles for the TES. So if you could just talk a little bit about your own teaching career, how you came into teaching. I mean, you're from Liverpool then, I take it, are you? Yeah. So... So it started, I, I was, um, I went to Liverpool University and I was thinking I might want to be a teacher. My sister was a teacher, so I was, I was a little bit put off by that. I wanted to do something <laughs> different. Um, but I did, I, I did some work experience in a primary school, a secondary school and a special school and mm. kind of plumped for secondary school. And then I, I trained in North Wales, actually. I trained at Bangor 
Um, And then effectively, I I went for different jobs, was unsuccessful for a couple. And then I went for a job in York at Huntington School. I'd never traveled to York, but everyone told me how beautiful it was and lovely city. Um, And somehow I got that job. Um, Didn't think I would for various reasons. I got that job and and I've never left. Um, So it was a great, it it was a great school and it is a great school. My my two children, um, well, one of my children goes, she's in year eight and Noah will go to Huntington. Um, That kind of tells you how much I enjoy the school. Yeah, Um, exactly. Mm. I joined Huntington about 18 years ago um, as a newbie English teacher, really experienced department. I think everyone had been teaching for just multiple years, some for (laughs) decades. Um, And I felt very, very young and kind of um, naive and kind of with a simple notion of of how tricky teaching was going to be. Yeah, yeah. and it was a bit of a struggle, actually, for first two or three years. I, I definitely enjoyed it, but I didn't find it easy. No. Um, in in York, there's a there's a mix of students. I think some people think it's a bit of a middle class oasis, and mm. it's it is a it's a wealthier than some you know from where I'm from, Liverpool. But actually, it's got a real healthy mix, and and the school was like that. So I could have you know year seven lessons with excitable you know yeah, kind of yeah. art arms up year sevens and then I'd have a year 13 lesson um you know the hour after I I seem to work a lot with nurture groups I seem yes, to be I used some, to do uh, that I know what you mean yeah. yeah so it was really varied I think in truth though for the first five or six years I was just getting to grips with it um and I effectively um with my partner we had a child mm-hmm. which killed my social life um, of course. <laughs> and I was also kind of moving up in kind of in my department leadership. So I ended up writing, I, I ended up looking outside for more answers because I was yeah. taking on leadership roles. And it was, you know, kind of, I was making so many decisions that were really quite important. But I felt, when you say leadership roles, sorry to interrupt you, do you mean within sort of like head of key stage English, head of a key yeah, stage in English? I, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, basically, if there's an English role to be had, I did it on the right, on, my, yeah. on the ladder. So mm-hmm. I did a bit of transition stuff at first. Then I was key stage three coordinator, second in English, eventually head of English and, yeah. and, and so on. Um, so I had a real good sense of the different aspects of the department, mm. but had that comfort of, of knowing people and, and knowing the school really well. Um, as Particularly as I moved to head of English, um, it was it was at the time... I was head of English when Michael Gove was making really significant changes. That happened to me the first year I was head of English. Yeah. That was me as well. But I suppose you had the yeah. advantage of already being in that school. So you had the reputation yeah. already. Yeah, there was that. There was that. But if you remember, it was just, mm-hmm. it, it was such a sea change. And actually for people who are, you know, who'd had their head down kind of working on, yep. you know, working on the normal stuff for so long, it just felt like a, a massive interruption and kind yeah. of, a big philosophical change and actually I think when it when things settled down it wasn't so dramatically different for teaching English literature GCSE and, and similar but it was there were significant changes the curriculum was overhauled and my experience was every four or five years that happened anyway but yeah it mm-hmm. certainly was a significant one and it was the first one that I felt I had much more ownership of yeah um so I ended up kind of looking on social media, got quite active on Twitter, started to blog and write. And 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 then a funny thing happened where I'd written quite a lot of blogs, some of them decent quality, some not so, and some some very English teaching orientated, a yeah. bit some a bit more broad, a bit political, whatever else. Um, and Jeff Barton mm-hmm. um, asked me if I could write um, a book for English teachers, for new English teachers. Um, in in the Teach Now series, so it's called Teach Now English. Um, I interestingly, Jeff Barton, who's a bit of my hero at the time, still is, hasn't changed. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, me too. And and what it turned out that he was head of English at Huntington about twenty years earlier. Oh, um, okay. So there's this there's this like strange heritage of kind mm. of following in Jeff's footsteps. I ended up doing a bit of training with Jeff, where he had to get back to his school for parents' evening, so I helped out in his afternoon training. And and I started to enter this world of kind of talking about English, writing about it, yeah. talking about teaching. 
Um, and, and then it kind of spanned from there. And I got particularly interested in research evidence for teachers in, in practical ways, because I started to have this stark realization that, you know, regardless of what change with, you know, Michael Goh's curriculum, yeah. there were lots of students who weren't accessing that curriculum. Exactly, and you can, yes. you can make it harder, but actually you were just almost lifting the bar yeah. beyond some students. And, well, that's what it felt it, like, didn't it? That first yeah, at the beginning, it, yeah. It did. And and for me, it just made more stark the differences for mm. some students who didn't have the vocabulary, the, the fluent reading, or the access to reading outside the school exactly, gates. Exactly, that's, that's massive, isn't it? Yeah. Had. So the more I kind of explored that, the more I tried to understand barriers to English, dyslexia. You know, I, I taught for 10 years and didn't fully understand what dyslexia was and why it wasn't yeah. and what I should do about it. So the more I got interested in these barriers, the more I kind of got serious about, OK, there's got to be better answers to this than kind of, you know, looking on in a Facebook group or whatever else. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up getting more in, engaged with accessing evidence and that eventually I, I did an EF trial where I was um, helping lead a project with Professor Rob Cohen and others to train school leaders about accessing evidence and, and research and, and eventually I've kind of effectively joined the EF and, and my remit as National Content Engagement Manager is to really listen to schools, listen to teachers and school leaders and about what they need and but also try and make sure the, the research evidence is accessible for them. And alongside that, I also write for myself um, and my passion is it hasn't changed. It's still, you know, this this gift of reading that I seem to have. How did that develop? You know, how do you maximize it, particularly for students who don't have easy access to the supports that some of the supports I did? And, and the same for writing, the same for vocabulary, the same for academic talk. And, and I, I've ended up writing books about the kind of the gaps, the disparities, the challenges, and and it's complex and, and there's no kind of silver bullet answers, but there's definitely better insight that school teachers and leaders can have, I think. And one of the big positives, you know, despite COVID and everything else is, I think teachers in England particularly are just more evidence informed than, than I certainly was 10 years ago. There's more resources, more access, more insight. Um, that doesn't make everything perfect and it certainly doesn't make it easy but actually i think for a uh, you know a head of department running an english department i think there's more sources or at least the more visible sources now than than when i was you know kind of mired in the trenches trying to do that work because i think that what you've said there are so many things you've said i agree with and i was just reflecting on when i was teaching myself in the last few years before i um left teaching and we started doing, you know, first of all, it was like you're in your own little bubble in your classroom, just getting on with it. And, you know, you'd, you know, you'd obviously have um, termly training and, you know, then I was head of department, did various things. But then we started doing research projects, like you said, and we used to go and meet. Um, we used to have what, like a twilight session once every term, I think it was. And we'd all meet from all other schools and share ideas and, you know, have workshops. And, and it was great because there'd be so many things that you hadn't even really thought about and there they were in front of you and you could you know yeah. um add so much to your own teaching practice obviously so I, I agree with you the research definitely wasn't so much of a thing back when I first started but it was definitely becoming more and more you know out there and you could definitely um, improve your teaching practice and get so many ideas couldn't you from attending those events yeah and I, I think so now we have we did have you know you had authorities and local organizations that would come together and associations I just think um, they were just a bit fewer far between compared yes. to now where you've just yeah. got and I think technology has made a big difference particularly in the last couple of years you know and and the pandemic for all the yeah. damage it's wrought mm -hmm. actually it's kind of accelerated some you know the likes of podcasts the likes of you know kind of having easy online video training yeah, yeah that sort of yeah. thing definitely and, and, and I think there's a there's an important balance to be struck, isn't there, between, you know, actually, I, I think there's a real huge value in getting out of school for the day and kind of allowing yourself to switch your email off and to be able to think. I, I can remember really vividly, I went to a conference in Liverpool, I, I did stay at my parents' house, um, and I got to listen to Dylan William and, and another oh, yeah. couple of, and, and actually, I didn't change my practice on Monday, I didn't, like, you know, lead the department any differently. 
but I just felt refreshed and I just felt mm. energized and had some ideas and and I had some inspiration isn't it yeah, yeah as well. and I think definitely I think just speaking to a lot of school leaders and teachers right now I think there's just they've been mired in so much for the past couple of years it's just been really hard to to find those the nourishing parts of the job and there are lots of them around you know you're planning and everything's had to be so reactive and kind of you know you're you're dealing with all the the day-to-day challenges and and that's not over you know we know there's continued challenges but actually I think we need to get back to that position where it's a tough job it's demanding it's time consuming but there's really nourishing aspects intellectually nourishing Definitely, nourishing yeah. in terms of those experiences with your class and you know reading a poem where you know it ends brilliantly surprisingly and, and they're all a bit taken aback even though they're teenagers trying to act hard about it um I think we need to mm-hmm. find those nourishing spots I totally agree and it's funny you say that because it just reminds me that um we're doing our first face-to-face conference in on July the 7th with penguins for litting colour for literature so it's just we're so excited about doing it and if you know we've had so many people sign up they want to bring their you know their students along so yeah it's just you feel like now it's starting to hopefully um, Covid permitting that everything's starting to feel like there's things you couldn't do before that like you say yeah. now you feel there's a thirst for it you're hungry to do things that you haven't been able to do for a long time and it just makes you think actually I need to do more of whatever it is to sort of, you know, like whether it's like you say to him for your own teaching practice, et cetera, et cetera, or to bring things into your department, anything you want to do, you can, you feel there's more of a hunger for it now, I think was what I'm trying to say. But it's funny you talking about um, writing, et cetera, and getting the best writing out of students, because we know that isn't easy. And you explore this in your book and you give many practical ideas for teachers to use in the classroom. And like I say, I was a teacher for 15 years myself, and many of the things you talk about in the introduction of your book resonated with me. I mean, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be, maybe I should be embarrassed to say it, but I've bought countless sherbet lemons over the years to try and make an exciting <laughs> lesson on writing to describe. And who knew you could be so excited about writing about a suite or, you know, took a class outside in, in the courtyard or on the field to try and soak up nature, to try and stimulate them to write an interesting piece. Just thinking of ways to try and engage them and support learners in their writing skills. We need to sort of strip back, really, don't we? And reading your book, it was just even reflecting on on how difficult it is for many learners to translate their thoughts into writing. I mean, many struggle with that, as you say, just getting started, finding the ideas, etc. And then the other thing I, that when I was reading, it, I thought, oh, do you know what? I haven't really thought of that. As students have to write in the different styles and the expectation of radically different approaches, depending on the subject they're writing for. I mean, can you just explain that as our audience are obviously English teachers and I know yeah. I wouldn't often think of the difficulties of how students have to change their style of writing for the subjects I mean apart from history where you know you'd often find someone would write their essay in the we might say not the style we'd want them to do it for English but it was how they'd been taught to write for history and I thought using the analogy of a chess game which you did was really interesting and it just makes you think more about the actual process of writing and how difficult it can be not just in English but across the curriculum and the subtle writing gap that exists there. So I think if I'll I'll sequence it a little bit so let's start with the analogy around the chess chess game so Mm -hmm. this was helpful for me so again I took it from from research from a research called Kellogg Um, and and it's this simple powerful idea that writing is one of the most complex tasks we expect our students to undertake and yet we do it so frequently it's something particularly in secondary school we can kind of assume almost that we uh, we get so expert we don't quite see the complexity anymore and and using the chess game analogy, it's just reflective that every time you write, there are many moves, complex interactions between those moves, lots of different pieces, chess pieces. And it's like a game of chess. It's this demanding cognitive task with lots of moves going on. And, and you need to plan ahead and you need to think about making changes and making next steps. And then when you when you think about writing, well, of course, we need to write a sentence, an accurate sentence, mm-hmm. but then yeah. underneath that, there are word choices, there are spelling accuracy matters. There's handwriting, which we often assume mm-hmm. that, you know, is yeah. something that isn't automatic, but for lots of our students, it isn't as automatic as mm-hmm. we think. And and as you then get to those seemingly creative elements of, of 
you know, choosing an imagery. So, you know, you've gone out and we're doing the lesson where we're doing romantic poetry and, and we're going around the, the greener bits of the school, you know, field yes, or whatever. exactly, else. yeah. And, and, and yes, you do need impetus, you do need inspiration, you do need ideas. But I think that's just one of the many moves mm. of writing. And too often we can almost jump to those more yeah. kind of advanced moves and, and forget handwriting, fluency and legibility. We can forget spelling accuracy. All of these seemingly kind of more basic moves, you know, like I mean, just shifting a pawn, they are either constraints or they're support factors to do the more complex thinking required of writing. So if you're doing that essay in history, well, you know, like English, you provide a planning support, you provide some scaffolds, you'll model some, you know, you'll map some ideas out, but still students have to logically, you know, sequence an argument, they have to organise accurate sentences, you know, thesis statements for each paragraph, conclusions, etc. So All the different layers, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and any time you're writing, even from a sentence in science to an essay in English, you've got multiple moves at play. Mm. And and that is something that as expert adults we just need to, you know, think hard about. And then and then the added layer that as an English teacher, we often don't think about. And the irony being that every teacher and other subjects assume we're the ones teaching writing mm -hmm. yeah. but we're teaching writing in English which is again quite distinctive quite unique yes it's got you know spelling kind of assumptions it's got accurate sentence assumptions but stylistically and, and in terms of purpose it's quite different so that descriptive writing of the of the you know sherbet lemon yeah that type of writing doesn't feature anywhere else in the school curriculum mm -hmm. so in the hour after the English lesson or the hour before, they're in a biology lesson and they're doing a write-up of an experiment. They're not expected to use full sentences. They're expected exactly, to have yeah. you know, a, a well-organized sequence, but it's, it's in bullet points. They don't need any elaborate sentences. And you know, five minutes later, we're making lots of, you know, we're guiding them to write in a very different way. And if you're one of those students who hasn't made automatic you know the kind of spelling accuracy the handwriting the the basic planning how to write a complex sentence with more than one clause and there are lots and lots of students who go really far through school who aren't confident still you know on a sentence level yeah, never definitely. on a whole text level so that's the challenge and that's where the writing gap actually it's something that if you're a secondary school english teacher you kind of know it, yeah. but the gap started so many years before the children get to you that mm -hmm. it, it almost starts to look a bit different. So if you're learning to write in year two and year three and you're doing your initial spelling and, you know, kind of handwriting then, if you've not secured that, if your vocabulary is a bit constrained and you, you're not able to be ambitious with your vocabulary, all of those things that make you feel like, you know, a creative quote yes, writer yeah. in secondary school. By the time you get to year seven, year eight, year nine, year 10, you've experienced so many small failures that you don't feel very academic. You're not very motivated and you're not very motivated in English. And, and writing doesn't feel something that's pleasurable for you because you've just had lots of experiences where it hasn't quite worked out. And, and the person next to you seems to have this yeah. you know, fluidity, fluency, and, and seems to do this with ease and grace. And that makes it a little bit worse, too. So. I think the writing gap, as I, I tried to explain it, it isn't to say, you know, kind of we need to transform our teaching and, and or do it differently or, or throw out the sherbet lemons completely, although <laughs> arguably maybe we should. I, I just eat them anyway. I'm terrible for sweet. <laughs> but I think we should concentrate more on the, the different moves of writing. So the model I like most, and it's why I selected it for the book, and there are lots of models for literacy and for writing, but yeah. the simple view of writing. That's what of, I was going to ask you about. Yeah, carry on. Yeah. Yeah. So so that basically chunks down all of these moves into three parts. So the, the graphic is a triangle um, and you've got on one corner of your triangle, you've got your basic handwriting, spelling, typing. You've got transcription, your ability to do those basic you know skills mm. then you've got composition which is your word choices your sentence level kind of accuracy your understanding of grammar for writing etc 
And then you've got executive function, which is a bit of a fancier notion, but it's effectively how you plan and monitor your writing, particularly extended writing. You need to do lots of that. So how you plan, monitor, how you organize yourself, how you st just stick to the task for 40 minutes, you know, all of those things. So the simple view of writing chunks down these moves into three really helpful areas. And I think as an English teacher, I think, yeah, I, I used to think a lot about spelling and wasn't quite sure how to teach it. Yeah, that's I, also, right, yeah. I also used to think about vocabulary choices and, and sophisticated vocabulary. That's it, yeah. I, I didn't quite have a sequence for it. And then I definitely used to teach lots of planning, lots of modeling. Yes, but yes, I'm not modeling, sure how, yeah. But I'm not sure where that synced with spelling or where that synced with vocabulary and sentence level work. So mm -hmm. I don't I don't offer some easy, you know, kind of here's the 10 things you need to do in an order. English isn't quite that simple still. The act of writing isn't quite that simple. But I think the more we think in these in these areas, the more we look at our curriculum and think, OK, where are we developing vocabulary for sophisticated it, yeah. choices for descriptive writing? Where it just are makes we... you sorry, go on. No, it, you, I, I could go on in terms of where are we mm -hmm. deliberately building up that That's planning. That's what it, yeah. And and there are some general whole school things that will help. A whole school focus on, you know, planning writing with mm -hmm. care and taking using some different planning strategies. A whole school focus on spelling might help, but invariably there'll be a big expectation on English teachers because other teachers don't have the training we have yeah. and yet an irony being we'll often describe our lack of confidence in our training I thought to myself if I was a trainee teacher and I'd read this book I would have found it really useful because you know at any point in your teaching career but it just kind of makes it really clear that you do need to sort of I don't know what the word like pair it back or just go back yeah, and yeah. think about it, it's not scaffolding as such in a way, is it? Because we do that anyway, but it's more about thinking about the process and those sort of skills that you need to have. I mean, there's so many different aspects it, of it, like you say. I mean, you've got a great section in there in the book on grammar as well. Because I know you said when you were in school, you didn't get taught grammar. I didn't either. And when I first started um, teaching, I was like, grammar? And it was just, you know, a big learning curve. But there's, yeah. you know, that is always a challenge to teach well as well. Even in years nine, GCSE 10 and so on, you're still harping on about sentence structures and all this sort of thing so it's something that never really stops really does it and no. yeah I mean so in terms of you know you've also got sentence variation strategies in there the practical strategies for you know for teaching in class there's many different aspects as yeah. a department have you got any sort of tips about what people could do to try and implement any new sort of ideas into yeah. this yeah, so I think it is about, OK, let's break this down into the knowledge and skills we want pupils mm. to have as writers in English. So there's elements of genre there that we need to think about. And then you look at your curriculum and think, OK, where do we address that development of that genre knowledge? Then you can look at planning, you know, kind of editing, revising your writing. Where do we address that? Then you can look at sentence level, you know, sentence variation. Where do we address that? And it's about, for me... Um, English isn't a hierarchical subject. It's cumulative. So mm. you have to keep on coming back around to sentence variation in different text types and different, you know, in different schemes of learning, etc. So it's about looking at our curriculum across the key stages and thinking, where's that artful repetition? So take the sentence variation. So I, I argue that if you can master that complex sentence, if a, a student can add in clauses and they can add yeah. in phrases and there is practice to do that if they can do that then they're well armed to write in any domain in any profession outside the school gate mm. but we need to practice it and, and pretty much practice it over and over so i've narrowed it down to say four sentence variation moves one of them being sentence combining another being sentence expanding and then and then it's okay do we have sentence combined and expanding in year seven yes i think we do what schemes would that best fit so you know probably a couple of schemes where we're really deliberate about that sentence level work and then we think okay where will we return to this and you know retrieval practice is one of those kind of phrases yeah, yeah. now that gets used where do we retrieve that deliberate practice for sentence variation and, and i think the more confident we are on just working at a sentence level, the more we can start to slot it in 
across our key stage. So from year seven, eight, and nine, and there's not necessarily um, a big difference in the deliberate practice. You're still varying sentences. You're so you're not. It's not necessarily harder, but the content changes each time. So there's and the effect the, of the sentence as well, yeah, and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and the different genres and the subtle changes of genre. Yeah. So you know, if we talk about grammar, well. There's a formality to an essay writing style. There's sentence signposts that are pretty much the spine, you know, of writing. You know, when we use phrases like "on the other hand" or you know, we're we're signalling our thinking and we're signalling our reasoning in an argument for an essay. Those sentence signposts are still useful in narrative writing, but they're 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 less important. They're less salient. So instead, for narrative writing, we're thinking about expanding and shrinking our sentences for effect for that rhythm for that pace of the narrative so you start to find that okay the more assured we are as a department as a teacher about the grammar moves for academic writing about sentence variation the more we can reflect them in our curriculum and sequence them appropriately and you know this isn't a perfect science there's an art to this and i but i think generally it's about careful repetition and it's about understanding your pupils and your classes and challenging them appropriately and then bringing that necessary repetition where we don't feel they've mastered you know an approach and we need to you know build that into again the curriculum so i i know the last two or three years you know the kind of the notion of our curriculum has been dominant hasn't it you know Ofsted yeah. have you know, stated the importance of curriculum they're they're right it is crucial that we think about the what and the how and the sequencing etc i think perhaps the the what of the english curriculum in terms of the texts we study is a little easier to think about and sequence and 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 to quiz around etc than some of these technical challenging aspects of grammar for writing or or kind of writing barriers or spelling so i think there needs to be perhaps a reflection of it's not just the text we teach, the genres we cover. It's actually the the knowledge and skill as a writer. The skills, that we also yeah, definitely. Teach. Because you know, you you you've got your website called the Confident Teacher. I was just thinking now about what we were talking about earlier, where you know yourself, like I've had those classes where students don't enjoy English. You know, people who maybe have never really engaged with English that well, and it's about giving them the confidence as well, isn't it? And sort of to write and to to try and engage with it more and the difference yeah. you, you know it's, what you said really is you need to know your classes and know your students yeah. and know how to um you know get the best out of them and to support them don't you really and and that and that comes from assessment doesn't it so this is where yeah. again, curriculum mm. curriculum and assessment are, uh, in irrevocably twins so if you take so i i had a, a very small nurture group of year seven students who you know by any by any measure were kind of working at a primary school level yeah but they couldn't what we couldn't do is not teach them Shakespeare not teach them the curriculum and and so it had to be a really careful artful you know process and one of the realities is they had more English lessons in year seven yes but it wouldn't be enough to just slow everything down and chunk everything down we had to identify okay what are the barriers that these pupils have been experiencing for a number of years? So things like handwriting for a portion of those students was a constraint that wasn't going to go away unless we addressed it. So we use in in the book, I share, you know, different approaches with my own son, but I also share the, um, the handwriting legibility scale. There's, there's diagnostic assessments for handwriting that you can use for a student who's struggling and then there are some simple approaches to deliberate practice that you can build up. And, and with those year seven students, there was this delicate balancing act of handwriting practice, spelling and editing practice, yeah. um, word selection. So I, I remember we did lots of kind of, you know, word choice activities, yeah. vocabulary sprints, et cetera, you know, using a thesaurus, but being really careful to, you know, avoid thesaurus syndrome, whether yeah, exactly. using big, yeah. big words badly. But we we do all those shrinking to get down to the to the knowledge and skill that they had to get better at, at the same time as tackling challenging texts. So we would do, you know, um, Beowulf, 
um, mm-hmm. in the Rosemary Sutcliffe kind of narrative translation. Yeah. We do we do Shakespeare, and we wouldn't patronise. We wouldn't you know read Shakespeare in in a complete kind of you know modern day translation. Mm-hmm. We would tackle you know the text, but we do it in a way that was it was scaffolded. It was walking them through. But with the extra time, we were able to balance these kind of the basic writing skill they needed, the reading strategies they needed and the knowledge and not stealing them away from more challenging mm. texts. But, so it became accessible for them then, didn't it? Yeah, it, it did. And just to take Beowulf. So, of course, Beowulf, we're not reading the original Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. I wouldn't get very far myself. No, I know what you but mean. We're, we're also we're not choosing to read the Seamus Heaney you know, version, mm. beautiful though it is. We're choosing the Rosemary Sutcliffe narrative because that narrative is still challenging, actually. It's still it's very much age appropriate, but still a Goldilocks text. You're still mm-hmm. learning lots of new vocabulary and you've got the, the the core of the narrative is right there. So you're making text choices that are not, you know, not taking away the cultural currency, but you're also aligning your curriculum with the writing development that's needed. And I think too often, you know, a student doesn't like Shakespeare for, for some of the obvious reasons. It's really challenging. Lots of the words, it's like a, an act of translation. But you've got to practice some of those strategies around translating the language of Shakespeare at the same time as sustaining their ability to write in extended sentences, yeah. in, in, in arguments and paragraphs. So none of this is easy. It's a, it's a you know constant job of curriculum assessment sensitive adaptations for appropriate you know students and for classes but this is this is the part of the job we also love it's that mm. responsiveness that we get from people's to texts and practicing is something more and more they yeah. do you know people do get better at it that is the thing isn't it yeah I, and i think so you know i wrote a whole book about vocabulary yeah um you know a few years back now and it was very popular and it was at the time where this it was emerging as a challenge but one of the things I'd use for, for all of teaching staff, not just English, was, right, let's bring some of our texts. Let's bring SATs papers and, and look at them and think, how would our year eight students, you know, what words would they understand and what would they not understand? Let's look at a business studies worksheet and let's look at the words they'd understand and not understand. And the more you do that, the more you just hold up, a, a, you shine a light on the experiences for lots of struggling students in our school. And when you do that, then you get that kind of impetus. Okay, well, what practical vocabulary strategies could we use that will give them a step, a step up? And it's not about then, you know, we're just doing vocabulary. We're we're not working on these other things. It's about being really conscious. Vocabulary is one of the important moves for writing, for reading and analysis of great texts. It doesn't mean we don't teach the emotion of Shakespeare. It doesn't mean we don't steal away the drama from Beowulf or, or whatever text we choose. It just means we're really conscious about deliberately teaching tricky vocabulary. Because when we do that, we make sure the curriculum's open to every student, not just the students who are reading freely outside the school gates or who have easy access yeah. to books because they've always read books with their parents. Exactly. And there is that big discrepancy, isn't there, where, you know, if you don't have books in your house or, you know, like you say, you're not read to at home, yeah. you're not really used to reading and you, you can't engage with it as much. Just one, just one last yeah, yeah, thing, on. say, on the vocabulary. So I, I got really interested in researching the history of reading and writing vocabulary. Right. Yeah. And, and you go back to effectively, you know, the Greeks and the Romans yeah. taught writing similarly to how we did. And when you get get down to the vocabulary, all of the complex words in our curriculum are connected. They have common roots. Yeah, so you can look at that, yeah. Yeah, you can look at word parts. So one I was looking at last week. So I was looking at um the, the aster, the flower. Aster mm-hmm. means little star. And I, I was I'd, I I knew that I I was in Northumberland on my half term holiday and I knew that that aster root was more interesting and I, I knew it had links. When you dig into it, it does mean little star. That's why the flower is described in that way. But it's also got the root in aster as in disaster. So, you know, like a, like a, you know, a kind of a star crashing, a kind of an asteroid, et cetera. Mm. So you've got asteroid comes from the same root as disaster. And, And you start to make these connections. And the one, 
the one thing that's enduring for me, if I was to ever give a kind of a, a memories of what happens in the classroom, for me, it's those thousands of small points where children just made these interesting connections mm. in their own heads often, yeah. but they'd often, oh, does that link to that? And then you'd see four or five of the light bulbs go off in the mm. classroom. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's about it's about making those teachable moments deliberate, right from the word level to sentence level to these amazing texts we get to teach. And I think, again, you know, if we can support English teachers with a little bit more kind of background around what word roots could be interesting and, and what we could draw out of different texts, then actually we, we're just enriching the curriculum and we're making it more accessible. No, I agree. And it's it's a really good point. All, all the points you made are good, but it just reminded me when I was um, when I was teaching myself and I'm sure you've come across this. We used to have, you know, every for the first couple of keys, seven year seven and year eight, I think it was. We'd have a um, I think it was about a four week scheme of learning about root words and, yeah, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. And it does, like you say, you can remember the sort of light bulb moments where, oh, right. OK. And there's 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 sort of almost like a science behind the language, as it were. Yeah. And it used to. Yeah, it definitely enriches and helps people to uh, have better insight into how writing and well vocabulary can enhance their own writing. Yeah. And that's it. You mentioned that the science behind it. Well, I mean, one of the things is, you know, teaching root words is super helpful in subjects mm. like science where they, they've effectively just got big words. But then right, actually, yeah. it just that science it's what illuminates, it's what makes the likes of Shakespeare more accessible. So one of the realities, if I'm reading Shakespeare, so I'm reading King Lear, I'm not understanding all the words and I'm a you know highly trained adult um, yeah. who's meant to teach this stuff. So <laughs> yeah. part of that, part of my recognition is that that's a thing. I need to be a word detective. I need to obviously mm. use the notes, but also use inferences from the text, try and, you know, often break the words down it's like code breaking sort of thing yeah it's it's code breaking and actually when you are really explicit about that with a struggling year 10 student with a, a year 7 student you're really explicit that I don't know all of this it's there for mm. interpretation so but you can crack this code and and actually that really liberates students so you know they can become word detectives they can yeah. break things down and and this is what when you're teaching Sherlock Holmes which is quite tricky because mm -hmm. some of the archaic language that's right yeah you know, you're putting that you know you're putting that deer stalker hat on <laughs> because you are giving them you're liberating them to say this is this is part of the job we're exploring we're connecting we don't have all the answers and actually you know part of the the joy and the excitement you know what Yates kind of talked about you know the fascination of what's difficult is that this is part of it if it was all so easy we wouldn't have so mm. so deep an emotional response there's something complex and layered about this so let's dig into those layers and I think that's where for me vocabulary level work got yeah. really exciting and then you, you know you just think about all those opportunities and and it, it we used to do a, a the origins of English language unit in oh, year yes. seven, mm -hmm. probably yeah. probably similar to what yeah. you're talking about. But I think, and I think that has value. But also now, I just think about all those opportunities where we could just be deliberate about all the mm. different texts we're teaching, and deliberate around when we're doing more English language orientated, you know, developing writing skill. We're also making the links there, and we're deliberate about that. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good way of describing it as well. Yeah, it just makes, you know, for anyone who's listening, they can sort of think about how they could incorporate this in their own sort of school, can't they, really? Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you about, actually, changing the subject slightly, was you talk about planning writing. And it's interesting because um, here at edXL, we've just brought out a new English language GCSE um, called 2.0. Yeah. And one of the things we put in there was a section where you can actually have a planning box before you start writing your answer. Well, before the candidates start writing yeah. their answer, obviously, because I just think, I think planning is something that, you know, you get a lot of a lot of learners who I don't want to put plan. I don't want to plan. And I just feel like I mean, what do you think about that? I know what you said in your book, but I'm just interested yeah. to hear you talking about it. Because I do think that, you know, when you get used to planning, it, it becomes part of the writing process, doesn't it? Because yeah. it just in, supports them in enabling to create a better piece of writing, doesn't it, really? Yeah. So I, I my view is pretty much the view of any teacher who's had to explained a hundred yeah, times why it. you should still plan mm -hmm. and that classic question do you get marked for it oh well, that one yeah 
and and they never quite believe you when you explain that actually you don't overtly get marked for it mm -hmm. but it will impact your writing etc cetera, etc cetera. i think i think for me it's back to the this complex game of chess that the planning moves become so quick and almost invisible for a really skilled writer and and we've got these kind of a mythology around writing that it's a gift and you know kind of eureka moments of insight actually when you look at the real process of writers they're slow they're methodical they have to draft the hell out of it um yeah. all those things that you know a teenage brain doesn't really like because that's right yeah kind of, so i think there's no there's no easy answer otherwise we'd no. all be we'd all be practicing it i think the understanding i took and, and there's some helpful insights in the research that in, in kind of making the book i broke down planning into two different types so there's pre-planning so that's that box isn't it kind of thinking about yeah. okay my paragraph structure any words or you know is there a little checklist i want to write yeah know, exactly etc and then there's actually reactive planning which is what good writers also do but often invisibly and quickly is after two paragraphs you stop and use quickly stop take and you go back to your plan and you might tweak it you might tick things off and you might edit and, and make a revision thinking about your audience and you know a missing kind of idea you've not put in there and the more deliberate we are about the different phases of planning so there is pre-planning this reactive planning and then there's evaluative kind of reflections at the end yeah. the more when we talk about them the more we name them the more we model them in class the more we scaffold them actually the more you do that the more it becomes internalized as a thought process and then the less necessity it is to actually write them out so this is this is one of the paradoxes you can have students who will get a, a grade nine yeah. who've got no visible planning on exactly. the page yeah but one or two bullet points for them triggers off a whole lot of associations yeah. which is you know pretty much planning anyway yeah. so it's it's a tricky one some students will be planning but they'll be doing it so practice so automatically they don't need to commit it to the page whereas lots of students and, and people like me I need to commit that planning to the page yeah. I need to just see my ideas a bit visibly I want to be able to tick them off I want to be able to cross them out because that will I know that that's a strategy that will help me and and I think broadly We've got a range of pupils who like different planning strategies. We yeah, want to exactly, trial yeah. some of the different approaches, but we want to make sure we've overlearned, overpracticed different planning approaches, modeling approaches with our students. Because it so just that, comes second nature to them, and then eventually yeah, doesn't yeah. it? They do it automatically. And, and, it, and it is internalized and automatic. And then it is fine that they don't write so much of it, but we still broadly, if we're making a bet, most students will benefit from a little bit yeah. of making a note and writing things down. If anything, it just slows them down at the start. Yeah, give you of some thinking time. Yeah. yeah, some thinking reflection. And I do feel sorry for them because they are under pressure to do, to, you know, to write a short story or whatever it is they choose to do, creative writing, for example, in such a short amount of time. It is difficult, isn't it? So it's not easy. But again, it's the more practice they do of it. And like you say, when you've got all these different layers and, in, and then you're doing all those different moves as in a chessboard, you know, it comes together more, doesn't it? And so by the time you get to, you know, the GCSE scenario, it's sort of become a bit more of a habit of doing things in a certain way and it becomes an easier process, hopefully. Yeah, and I, th I think that word habit's crucial. So I think this is where we end up kind of practicing the GCSE question in year eight, because we think, right, if they mm -hmm. just do this 50 times, it'll become so ingrained <laughs> into habit. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually that that will have some success, but it will be a limited success. And yeah. actually, I think I think for me, what habit we want to build. So in year eight, we want to be doing lots of sentence level practice, lots mm -hmm, of creative yeah. writing on the sentence level, uh, you know, looking at how brilliant writers open novels with, yeah. you know, 1984 and, you know, these amazing sentence yeah. level cre creative ideas. But we need to practice the, the singular moves in the chess game a bit more often than we think mm. and then try and hold off from the big full game with all the moves at play as as late as we can you know my you know my daughter she's in year eight she's at the end of the school year near, near enough she's starting to do those end of year exams 
They're going to do some writing practice. They're going to do some consolidation, some questions about the text they studied this year. And that's fine and appropriate. I think Mm -hmm. jumping to the narrative writing and the big full game too often, too quickly. Expecting too much of them. Yeah. Yeah. It leaves behind those students who are just still struggling with the transcription, mm. just still so struggling. So you end up They've losing got... confidence then instead of, yeah, yeah, yeah I can see And you don't, you don't need to do the exam question necessarily. Exactly, you, yeah. You need to practice the move of, of planning, pre-planning, and have three or four approaches and, and use those approaches for an essay, use them for narrative writing, and, they beca- and the planning process has become ingrained mm. and it leaves you space late year 10 for a bit of practice and then late year 11 where you get familiar with the exam and the timings of the exam and and yeah there there is a pressure you know to write something decent in half an hour 40 minutes that's really tricky it's tricky for an adult to do never mind a 15 year old exactly but the but the reality is they won't need many goes at that 50 minutes Mm. practice if they've had lots of deliberate practice throughout key stage three and into 10 11 of those different moves and combining those moves. Because there has been a sort of a bit of a, um, I don't want to call it trend, but there was a, and I can see why, where schools were starts, you know, a lot of English departments were starting to go, starting from key stage three, as soon as they get here, we're going to start talking about the assessment objectives for GCSE. And it's all going to focus on that. And all the assessments are going to be like mini assessments. But I think there's a move away from that now, isn't there? Because that was just not really the best way of doing it. Yeah, I think, I've identified the moving away. I, I also recognise why it happens, though. So yeah. if we go back to, OK, what are those, what's the writing knowledge and skill pupils need to develop through Key Stage 3? And invariably, lots of departments won't have clear answers to that and won't yeah, be, exactly. have, there's no shared national model of what writing True. progression, literature progression should be. Yes, there's national curriculum, but that's a bit vague and, and, mm. and hard to pin down. So in lieu of this kind of assured grasp of grammar development, assured grasp of writing skill, assured grasp of literature development, we, we look for other answers. And, and an obvious one is, OK, if we want them to do well in these exams, let's have a clear you know trajectory, a clear map towards what that exam looks like. Yeah, I think so. It's understandable. I think there's there's no like quick fix here and there's no kind of curriculum model everyone should be doing. Your curriculum model should be sensitive to your school, mm-hmm. to your local area, particularly with literature and, and stories and yeah, different of course. voices that represent, you know. And your own hard, class, hard you know, your own pupils yeah. again, yeah. But I think we need to get better at cohering those expectations around writing development, around reading development, around vocabulary development, around handwriting development. And and that requires some support and training for teachers over time. And it's the training that I didn't think I got. It's the, it's, it's the cause and the genesis of writing books about this stuff, because actually there's not an easy agreement across the piece about what English literature or English language is. Yeah. So we're still arguing about the subject and not quite, <laughs> yeah, not quite agreeing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if we're still arguing about what the subject is, then how can we build really high quality progressions? But I, I'm also, I, I'm more, I'm much more positive now, you know, some of the, um, you know, curricula that's been developed in schools and trusts that I'm seeing is so, so much better than what I was thinking about a number of years ago. Yeah. It's more multifaceted. It's more thoughtful. It thinks more about literature and representing voices and diversity that's than I true. ever thought yeah. about. Mm, so I think, I think we've made lots of real positive steps. Vocabulary, I think. There's been a sea change in an understanding of the role of vocabulary in English. Yeah. And, and that comes with some, you know, unintended consequences and some problems and, you know, lethal mutations of, you know, kind of some dodgy practice. But yeah. that, that's like our students. That's part of the learning process. So broadly, I, I am positive. I still think there's a necessity to support English teachers with understanding the reading development, writing development, these seemingly core basic skill developments that I don't think we quite get underneath enough. No, no, I agree. It's interesting, isn't it? In your book, what I love about that, as I think I mentioned it earlier, was that it gives teachers sort of practical strategies and things that you probably do know, but you might not have thought about. And you start reflecting on things a bit more than you might have done. 
Um, and it does make you think about the process of writing and how to empower your students to create the effective pieces of writing. I mean, I'm talking, you know, about um, GCSE as well here. You know, you mentioned about handwriting that is you know, you get some students who really, they really, really struggle with handwriting, like you mentioned, the nurture group. Maybe GCSE English exams will be on computer yeah. and that yeah. would be great yeah. in terms of, I mean, that's for those sort of, you know, students who struggle with handwriting. How good would that be? And the editing thing and all that. I think that's got to be a positive, hasn't it, do you think, for the future? Yeah, so I, I don't think we're very far away, are we? No, exactly. Online exams. And I think there is there are big booms there. And in terms of, you know, how do I write? Well, I, I still, in my working day, I make handwritten notes, but yeah. I still, you know, I'm typing things That's up. That's it. Mm. So my, my typing fluency matters. I think yeah. one of the, what the important caveat to the benefit of, of moving to, say, digital exams, which I, I think just broadly is a benefit as long as everyone yeah. gets e equal access to digital exactly. technology. Exactly, that's the thing, isn't it, about, but that's yeah. another story, yeah. It, another, but the, the thing that too, too many people don't quite see is the research indicates that handwriting, particularly for younger writers, is really important in encoding, kind of, you know, embedding um, writing skill and handwriting development, handwriting fluency, handwriting legibility, links to spelling, spelling links to planning. Mm -hmm. And so this, this transcription in the simple model has handwriting as a basic skill. And it is it is a basic skill. And most students in secondary school will have made that automatic. And it might not be brilliantly legible, but it's fine yeah. and, it's, and it's working. But I think what we need to be careful not to lose the, the memorable aspect of handwriting, mm. where there's something about how we've developed as humans, where handwriting encodes spelling patterns, it helps encode oh, right, yeah. a deeper knowledge of vocabulary, so there are some important things that we can't quite lose. Mm. And I think I think particularly for younger children. So I think as we get to secondary school, for most students who've, you know, their age appropriate degree of handwriting, it no longer matters so much. But it still matters. So even in some university studies, you know, there's still um, issues about spelling, handwriting, et cetera, that yeah. still constrain even very successful students. So for me. I'm no Luddite. What I, I think is we should enter and use digital tools, voice to text, brilliant opportunity there. We should use those tools knowingly, carefully. If we're supporting a child who's got you know, serious handwriting issues, actually using a, a, you know, using a, a laptop is entirely appropriate and they need additional support yeah. outside the classroom. But we shouldn't throw out the pen because it matters too much to writing development far beyond just handwriting legibility. Yeah, so that's... it's this, again, careful knowledge. Let's use the, the evidence that's there um, and let's make some good judgments. And I, and I think digital exams are the future Definitely, and they'll yeah. be a good bet. Mm, exactly. I could talk to you for ages because I find this really interesting and I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, I think we're going to have to end though. We've been talking for quite a while now. So yeah, yeah it's been really, really interesting. But I was just going to say before you go, um, the, if the listeners wanted to follow you or contact you, yeah. just can you just remind me of your Twitter handle? Yeah, so I used to be hunting English, which was yeah. a, a moniker that took my Huntington School <laughs> in English. Oh, is that what it was? Um, oh, I always yeah, wondered what that was. It was. Ah. I did get followed by lots of um, American <laughs> hunters um, with, with, rif with rifles in their oh, Twitter no. profile. That'll uh, teach you. To, yeah, yeah to block. <laughs> Uh, so, but I changed it to my Twitter handle is Alex J Quigley, mm. um, and you mentioned my website, The Confident Teacher. Yeah. I think I'd point I'd point people particularly to the resources page of my website. Lots of free resources there. Yeah, that's a um, good point. And, I looked at those, and that that's good. Yeah, there's lots of different uh, variety there to do with writing and, and all sorts, isn't there? Even yeah, and, reading. And I think I think for me, there, there's definitely you know the specific like you know one of my most popular blogs of all time is is one about teaching a Christmas carol. But oh. I've, become, I've become really interested, as you can probably guess, in, in these kind of core processes of reading development, yeah. writing development. Yeah. And I think for me, so one of the revelations, again, having a secondary English background, yeah. is that early language development as well 
um, and, and being more knowledgeable and confident about that and, and the transition up to secondary school. So hopefully there's a lot in there that is quite subject specific, but also it, it tackles literacy, I think. And I think that's that's my real passion. The books themselves are for primary and secondary. They've got yeah. that breadth of kind of literacy. Um, and I think I, I get interested well in disciplinary literacy. So what, what do we mean about writing in geography? about reading in mathematics etc so yeah and again it's probably just a curious English teacher who sat in science lessons and and German lessons um, and thought well this is quite different isn't it but in in a way that's helpful and just Mm. again builds that knowledge um, for English teachers about these this knowledge and skill development which is so key Well, thank you so much, Alex. I've really enjoyed that, as I said earlier. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll work with you again. Thanks, Pamela.